Media technologies seem to be everywhere, assisting us in, or invading, each and every corner of our daily existence. We've already discussed how this ubiquity is embedded into a huge range of physical infrastructures, environments where media technologies surround us. And yet, we also increasingly carry media around with us, in our pockets, hands, ears, across our eyes, around our wrists. We wear media like clothes, and we soon may implant media within our bodies. This need not be seen in the guise of science fiction. It is more interesting to see it as really quite ordinary. For a long time, we humans have shared an intimacy with media technologies. They not only affect how we see ourselves, but modulate and help produce who and what we are. Media Technology and Culture is a podcast series by me, Scott Rogers. In this series, we'll be taking a thematic look at media, understood as technologies. We explore the histories of media, as well as more recent developments, and not always necessarily in a linear progression. Some of you listeners will also be students on my module, Media Technology and Culture, in which we'll discuss and work on some of these themes in more detail. This episode is the seventh in our series, focused on embodied technologies. The key idea I want to get across is this. It seems inevitable that future technologies will be more and more embodied, perhaps even embedded into our bodies. But we should be careful not to exaggerate the novelty of this. We have long been intimately entangled with media. We should start by avoiding possible confusion around what we mean by embodied technologies. We do not necessarily mean media technologies given a bodily form so that they can better interact with us in a variety of settings. In the field of artificial intelligence, this is what is sometimes called embodied agents. These are kinds of physically or graphically represented bodies that interact with us. The discontinued Microsoft agent, for example, allowed you to create cartoonish characters that could interact with website users. Of course, embodied agents could also include androids. We, however, mean technological embodiment more generally. This is the sense that we introduced in episode one when we discussed post-humanist perspectives. A post-human perspective sees technologies as akin to prosthetics, like artificial parts of our bodies. This was a perspective shared with McLuhan, who saw media as extensions. In their 2012 book, Life After New Media, Kember and Zielinska stressed that this means thinking about media, thinking about all technologies, as inherently tied to being human. Media are not external to and affecting some pre-mediated or pre-technical human. Being human means acting and thinking through technologies. There's a challenge here, to move beyond a set of binaries in which we are very comfortable, mentioned in episode one, technology and use, technology and culture, and technology and humans. Another is to get past the assumption that for a media technology to be considered embodied, it has to be literally implanted into our bodies. As we will see, this assumption is consoling. It allows us to believe that we humans currently have autonomy from technologies. To be sure, implanting media technologies into our bodies is and will be significant. 
But the point made by many media scholars is that we underestimate the degree to which we are already intimately entangled with media. One of the ways we will look at our intimate entanglements is in relation to mobile technologies. Consider print media. Adriana D'Souza e Silva and Jordan Frith note in their 2012 book, Mobile Interfaces in Public Spaces, that print media have not always been mobile. Early book reading predominantly took place in libraries, where heavy hardback texts sat on reading desks. The elaborate book wheel, illustrated in 1588 by Italian military engineer Agostino Ramelli, was intended to allow readers to deal with several such unwieldy books while remaining seated. Paperback books and newspapers were revolutionary in part because they were mobile. They reshaped reading practices in many ways, and particularly amongst rail commuters in industrializing cities. As D'Souza, Silva, and Frith observe, upper-class Victorian commuters were especially anxious about facing one another on long train journeys. Newspaper and book reading offered a desirable form of embodied coping. It is not dissimilar to how we sometimes use mobile sound technologies today. Media became what Irving Goffman called involvement shields. We could look at a whole gamut of embodied media entanglements, but let us maintain the focus we've been building up in the last few episodes around broadly computational technologies. It is, after all, a pretty reasonable bet that you right now have a little computer nearby, one that you unthinkingly bring almost everywhere you go. We mean, of course, your smartphone, assuming you have one. We have an intimate relation with smartphones and many other computational technologies today. To properly grasp this, we need to somewhat shift our approach. We need to momentarily turn some of our attention away from all that software, hardware, and infrastructures, and think about how computation intersects with our psychology, emotions, and affects. One of the preeminent thinkers on this subject is Sherry Turkle, whose large body of work focuses on human entanglement with technology and particularly computational objects. Her 1984 book, The Second Self, argued that computers do not just change what we do, they change how we think and see ourselves. Let's start with the humble mobile phone. Remember these? The mobile devices, which were mainly used for voice calls and text messages? Perhaps a low-res photo here or a basic video game there? We should start with mobile phones, not so much for their narrowly technical qualities, but what scholars have argued they embody culturally. Mobile phones presented a new iteration of something familiar, the doubling of space. We discussed this in relation to television in episode 2. Early television can be considered a doubling of space, in which viewers situated in private settings are connected to a public world. For example, being presented images of inner city issues from the seclusion of a suburban home. In some ways, mobile phones did the reverse. They helped us bring private spaces into public settings. And in so doing, they raised a series of questions about existing norms of public etiquette, such as the appropriateness of taking a call during a restaurant meal. Mobile phones were also an interesting case study of user-led domestication and invention. Recall Lisa Gittleman's appeal in her 2006 book, Always Already New, for us to think about media use as a form of production. She showed how female homemakers effectively made the phonograph into a new form of music media. Now, think about the deep impact of texting practices, emerging especially from how younger people used mobile phones for communication with friends. 
This has deeply shaped how we use social media, messaging apps, the development of predictive text and autocomplete affordances, all thanks to inventive practices born from the embodied situation of cradling this small device in one's hands, tapping away at tiny little numbered buttons. Katz and Akis, in their 2002 edited book, Perpetual Contact, made the broad claim that the emergence of mobile phones embodied a new apparatgeist. By this, they mean a machine spirit. One might go and study different norms around mobile phone etiquette in different cultural contexts, but at the broader scale, there are, they argued, patterns of convergence related to mobile communication. Convergence around one important idea and ideal, perpetual contact with others. May and Hearn, in a 2005 article entitled The Mobile Phone is Media, looked at how the mobile phone's history involved a transition from interpersonal communication device to media platform. The fact that they are writing in 2005 is significant. It's two years before a major transformation was about to arrive in mobile technology. This is a change we will come to shortly, but that change did not miraculously and suddenly render mobile phones into media. This was a longer process. Since the late 1990s, mobile phones were increasingly being customized and personalized by their users, with simple monophonic ringtones, changeable plastic covers, and hand-knit cozies. By the early 2000s, 3G connectivity, certain data processing capacities, cameras, and icon-driven media centers were also beginning to appear. Mainhern argued that these processes already represented an abstraction of mobile phones from their original intended purpose. They became media that were personalized and aestheticized. Users had developed more intimate relationships with their mobiles beyond their functioning as transparent mediums of interpersonal communication. More and more, they became an identity extension, an accoutrement to the person. This is a day I've been looking forward to for two and a half years. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. On the 9th of January, 2007, Apple co-founder Steve Jobs made a presentation at Macworld San Francisco. Almost straight away, he toyed with the audience, claiming that he was launching three devices at this event. So, three things. A widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod, a phone. Are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, Today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. The iPhone was not the first smartphone, but it was the device which alerted everyone to this emergent media technology. Smartphone is a portmanteau, a fused word which amalgamates new and old. Its first element, smart, is a prefix that today is usually associated with computation, but also, of course, cleverness. With phone, 
we are given something more familiar, the residual media, the remediated object, with which this device shares some properties and surface resemblances. James Miller, in a 2014 article in the journal Mobile Media and Communication, suggests we think about the smartphone as a potentially illuminating theory object. Not only might we attempt to better understand the smartphone, or give it context using existing theoretical perspectives, the smartphone itself might also encourage us to ask new and broader conceptual questions about media and mediated experience more generally. One of Miller's main arguments is that smartphones embody a broader shift away from media as material devices to media as a set of embedded functionalities. What he means is that smartphones are not just small computers. They are not just little metamediums, to restate the notion identified with Manovich in episode 5. Rather, for Miller, smartphones might indicate a shift to media being embedded into both our bodies as well as built environments. They are leading us to a situation of increasingly mixed reality, where our physical inhabitation of the world is increasingly overlaid with various forms of personal and environmental media. Miller frames this shift under the banner of mediatization. At the most general level, mediatization refers to the difficulty we experience today in distinguishing between mediated and non-mediated experiences. Perhaps one of the most convincing arenas of mediatization theory is politics. It is hard to even think about any political action or discourse today that is not somehow imbued with the logic of media institutions or technologies. In his discussion of the smartphone, Miller conceptualizes mediatization with an emphasis on experience. Smartphones, he says, might be understood as bridging technologies. This is to say we should think about what they might be taking us partway towards, a situation in which media are so ubiquitous that they become incorporated into and indistinguishable from our bodies and physical environments. But even if smartphones are bridging technologies, Miller says, this is not reducible to their technical features. It also has to do with their intimate entanglements with us. These are devices we hold, really cradle, in our hands. We keep them in our pockets. Their screen might illuminate our face in a darkened room before we go to sleep. Most might not want to admit it. But smartphones might be seen as what Turkle calls evocative objects. Quote, we think with the objects we love, we love the objects we think with. End quote. Miller suggests that the smartphone makes obvious the problems with the idea of a purely biological mind. According to philosophers such as Andy Clark, humans are, quote, natural-born cyborgs, end quote. How we think, and even to a degree what we think, or at least can think, is entirely interwoven with non-biological forms. So the smartphone might be seen as a continuation of humans having an extended mind. In the longer term, the smartphone itself might be regarded as a relatively primitive version of such cognitive externalization. If you have ever lost your smartphone, or accidentally left it at home, you might have been encouraged to recognize this. In such an instance, you are not only left without your smartphone device, you are left without all of your acquired habits that depend on your mind, body, and device working in sync. For example, how you navigate the city, make arrangements or keep in touch with friends, pay for things, fill in time with music or interesting podcasts about media technology and culture, or take photos, not just to make memories, but maybe to avoid writing something down. Losing or misplacing a device like this can be like losing part of your body and mind. At least if you treat body and mind as including external things, things not permanently connected to you or implanted into you. It is true that we like to think of ourselves as separate from our devices. 
Maybe we even consider it an ethical imperative to think this way. And yet, with many smartphone accessories and codependencies, the separation is blurry. Increasingly small and discreet Bluetooth headphones are a good example. In a 2018 piece in The Atlantic, Ian Bogost notes how Bluetooth headsets are an omen for something deeper. After an hour wearing them, he observes how he loses, quote, the sensation that they occupy in my oracle. Unlike the corded buds, there's no need to untether myself from the phone when I get up to do something else. I'm in the kitchen making a coffee. Then I'm outside getting in the mail. I might or might not be listening to music or talking on the phone, but it doesn't matter anymore. I could be, at any time and without impediment. I could also pose requests to or initiate tasks to Siri. I am connected to the phone, and therefore the world, without being tethered to it directly. End quote. Bogust notes that headsets like Apple's AirPods are still obtrusive. They look, he says, quote, a little ridiculous. White sprouts hang down an inch below the ears where the cords would attach. But eventually it won't matter, as people will get used to everyone having wireless buds stuck in their heads. Not like they're used to wired earbuds in the train or on the sidewalk or at the dog park. No, more like they're used to people staring at their phones all the time, anywhere. The earbuds won't disappear just like the smartphones haven't but they will become invisible as they become ubiquitous. Human focus, already ambiguously cleft between world and screen, will become split again, even when maintaining eye contact. End quote. one of the fanciful conceptual walkthrough videos produced for Google Glass. The user, just awakened, has his hands occupied with things like making coffee and eating a breakfast sandwich. But his appointments for the day, weather and so on, appear in his field of vision. Glass was a less successful wearable, at least as far as mass market devices go. Essentially, it was a pair of glasses as computer interface. It made use of an optical head-mounted display, voice commands, and a small swiping interface on one of the temples. Its early prototype required a smartphone link, which allowed it to offer a series of apps which might be useful within the user's field of vision. For example, navigation, sporting data, like golf course information, real-time translation, recipes, and of course, photography. The prototype partly ran aground on privacy concerns around, for example, surreptitious photography. But Google is working still on glass. Its current focus is on an enterprise edition designed for workplace applications. Audio manufacturer Bose took a slightly different approach with its augmented reality sunglasses, the prototypes for which ended in June 2020. These did not overlay digital objects or information into the field of vision. Bose's AR sunglasses had no screen and no camera. Instead, via onboard motion sensors tracking the direction the person was facing and their GPS coordinates, they provided audio information about what the user was looking at. One niche example of so-called smart glasses which have found a user base are social media platform Snapchat's pared-down spectacles. They build camera lenses into sunglasses, which can record short videos that then, via a smartphone, sync back to the user's Snapchat profile. We should be mindful not to overfocus on questions of physical embodiment such as smartphone functionalities being extended into our eyes or ears. We might also think about smartphones as intimately entangled with our identity. Indeed, 
As Miller suggests, the smartphone has become a kind of individualization machine. We know from thinkers like Irving Goffman and Judith Butler that we should think about identity not as something we have, but as something we do. Identity is an ongoing practical or performative achievement. Miller mentions the work of Zygmunt Bauman, who described a historical shift in which identity has evolved from a given to a task. And here, the smartphone is potentially central. Think about smartphone cameras. Miller cites Daniel Palmer's observation that front and rear facing cameras allow smartphone screens to, quote, alternate between a window and a mirror and function as a life recorder, end quote. At least potentially, this supports human existence becoming a kind of DIY or choice biography. It makes possible or even invites one to keep a narrative going and actively construct one's identity. Our entanglements with mobile media are not just a case of us more or less consciously sharing and accessing information with our eyes, ears, or digits. Increasingly, we are also entangled through devices that, in the background, track our bodily metrics. One of the most obvious media forms in this respect are wrist-wearable tracking devices such as Fitbit or Apple Watch. These technologies are in many ways closely related to smartphones, and not only because wrist wearables usually need to sync with them. They also extend the ecology of apps from smartphone to body, and through that ergonomic connection, change how the app is used. Of course, like the smartphone, they also nod at a prior media form, in this case the watch, as an entree to the new. James Gilmore, in a 2016 article in the journal New Media and Society, suggests that wrist-wearable tracking devices are an instance of everywhere, W-E-A-R, itself a subvariant of what Adam Greenfield described in his 2016 book as everywhere, W-A-R-E. Wrist wearables are not just pervasive, but since you wear them on your body, they connect closely and largely non-consciously to your daily routines. In short, Gilmore says, they invite you to wear a routine. Although wrist wearable devices often include a range of functionalities, their chief selling feature is their biometric capacities. With features such as GPS, barometric altimeters, accelerometers, compasses, and sensors, they can detect your movement and heart rate. But as Kate Crawford and her co-authors point out in a 2015 article in the European Journal of Cultural Studies, physical quantification by external means is not in itself new. A distinct but related historical instance, they observe, would be the weight scale. The weight scale has moved through a series of different spaces. Initially, they were mainly used in doctor's offices. By the late 19th century, penny scales began popping up in public spaces, allowing people to discover their numeric weight, often alongside the sound of a ringing bell or a popular song. In the early 20th century, interest grew for having scales within the home, and here a more private and intimate relationship with weighing oneself became possible. Personal uses of weight scales provides an example which shares some similarities with the use of wrist-wearable tracking devices. Both entail, for instance, a practical commitment to accurate and repetitious self-monitoring. But what is most useful about Crawford et al.'s historicization are the differences it highlights as well. One of the most important differences between weighing oneself and wearable self-tracking technologies is the nature of their data and its valuation. With the weight scale, your data is largely private, and it has an individual use value. 
You may need to pay for it, but it is more of a one-off payment, for instance, buying the scale that will give you this data, or putting the penny into the public apparatus. Most wearable technologies, by contrast, involve terms of use governing the data created through the process of tracking. These govern how your data can be collected, aggregated, shared, and potentially reused, even sold. At the very least, your data is needed to make different aspects of the tracking app work, for you individually, but also for other users. Wearable self-tracking technologies therefore not only involve a personal use value, but also an exchange value. While you might pay for the device itself, you also pay by agreeing to give over some of your data. Mummy, what's that? Vitality sent my new Apple Watch. So now, when I exercise, it measures what I do and I get all these points. It has cool stuff. Too. At Vitality Health and Life Insurance, we like to share the benefits of healthy living. Oxygen levels mm. attract my elevation. So you can get an Apple Watch Series 6 from just £37 with nothing more to pay when you stay active. Health insurance is quickly becoming one obvious arena in which users exchange biometric data for financial return. In recent years in the UK, Vitality Insurance has offered potential customers the latest Apple Watch for as little as one-tenth of the price, provided they stay active, as evidenced by sharing their captured health data. Another key difference between an example like the weight scale and many uses of wearable technologies is the relationship of public and private. Many users of wearables willingly share their data with others. Runners and cyclists with accounts on, for example, Strava or Endemondo, connect with friends and allow their metrics to be shared. Algorithms on these apps further aggregate and compare your data with others. Will you hold on to that title as top runner on Rodex during Y time period? Crawford and her co-authors suggest that there is an interesting rearticulation of public and private with wearable technologies. They draw on American cultural historian Hillel Schwartz, who, in his 1986 book, Never Satisfied, points out that as the weight scale moved from doctor's office to public space to private home, there was, quote, a semantic shift from the third person to the second person, and from the declarative to the conditional, from what this person weighs to what you should weigh and what you could be, end quote. Wearable technologies seem to reinstate such a third-person public and sociable dimension, alongside a declarative second and first person as well. There is one close similarity between the historical example of the weight scale and self-tracking wearables. Both, say Crawford et al., involve a moral epistemology in which only by accurately and even scientifically measuring bodily conditions can one, quote, lead a good life, end quote. There is an assumption at play here that numerical accuracy is the most immediate path to truth and self-knowledge, Crawford et al. discussed some examples of vintage weight scale ads as well as those of contemporary self-tracking technologies. Both, they find, seem to put forward, quote, the belief that the better the data, the better the quality of self-knowledge, and so a better human is created. Recent years have shown how data leakages and data exhaust from wearable tracking technologies can raise considerable ethical issues. Some of these issues stem from any technologies that are location-based. As D'Souza, E. Silva, and Frith point out, significant privacy issues can arise when geographic location gets joined with person-based information. Digital surveillance extends from your personal identity to your personal position in space. One interesting case was the accidental release of sensitive information about the location and staffing of military bases and spy outposts around the world. 
health tracking app Strava's data visualization map, which showed all tracked user activity, included, for example, a very clear visualization of the U.S. military base in Helmand Province, Afghanistan, clearly demarcated by the routes taken repeatedly by jogging personnel. Crawford and her co-authors highlight black mirror-like, but entirely plausible, scenarios in which self-tracking data might be used in legal proceedings. Might it be possible to obtain health data via a court order, for example, to substantiate or disprove contentious insurance claims? Or perhaps tracking data might help establish an alibi or demonstrate a suspect's proximity to a murder scene? These kinds of developments, which are not far on the horizon, will surely test our trust in institutions, not to mention our willingness and ability to challenge the authority of the platforms controlling this biometric and locational data. We should also remember that self-tracking might not always be something one can easily opt out of. Recent Amazon patents show designs for a wristband that could precisely track where warehouse employees are placing their hands. And get this, it would use vibrations to nudge the hands in different directions. The concept is meant to streamline the fulfillment of orders. And of course, add in another layer of surveillance and control at work. Our next episode on participatory technologies is part of a set of three episodes, our final three, which will be themed around a set of contemporary issues. So until then, I'm Scott Rogers, and you've been listening to Media, Technology, and Culture.